0: The good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. What's the meaning of all this? To answer that question, we have to go back to something that happened a lot earlier in the story. Do you remember the plagues against the Pharaoh? Do you remember what the 10th plague was, the one where God killed all the firstborn? Well, during that plague, God protected his people in, in a really special way. They were supposed to take a hyssop branch dip it in blood from the lamb that they sacrificed and put that blood on the sides and over the doors of their homes. God did what he said he would do. He he saved the children of the Israelites from certain death. These children were also rescued from Pharaoh's army when God brought the people through the waters of the Red Sea. In fact, it would be this generation of saved children who would be the ones to enter the promised land after their parents wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. These saved ones had had done nothing to be able to earn their salvation. They were just little children. But God saved them, and he saved them through the blood and through the water. But just before Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, he said, I'm thirsty. And they took a sponge soaked with wine vinegar and put it on a hyssop branch and lifted it up to Jesus. Jesus had denied the first offer of wine, which was mixed with myrrh, and that was designed to dull pain. But he took this wine, which was supposed to keep him conscious for longer. This wine vinegar was a corrupted wine. Just after Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, the soldiers were about to go through and break the legs of those on the crosses, including Jesus. But first, they pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. God had initiated a covenant with his people, using the Passover as an annual reminder of those covenants in which they would drink four cups of wine to remember the four covenants God made with the people. But the people had broken or corrupted each of these covenants. And the Messiah was crucified by the people he was sent to save. He was dying for them while they violated God's covenant. And just like they used the hyssop branch in the Old Testament to mark the doors of their homes, the guards extended a hyssop branch up as Jesus' blood was being poured out on the cross. And then to ensure that Jesus was actually dead, they pierced His side, or likely pierced His heart, where the blood and water ran out. The Passover lamb that protected the firstborn in Israel was a metaphor for what God would do to His one and only Son, as Jesus would become the once-for-all mankind eternal Passover Lamb. John the Baptist knew that that was why Jesus was here. In John 1:29, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John said, "Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." Jesus was the Lamb of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22 say. with pure water. For all who enter in through the cross, Jesus' blood marks the doorpost. And when it's time for judgment, only those who have entered in through Jesus' blood will be saved. And that curtain that was torn when Jesus died, it too was, was just a metaphor. Yes, that curtain separated people from the dwelling place of God's presence, but the real issue that needed to be dealt with was their sin. When Jesus' body was torn, the curtain separating us from God was torn. And when Jesus said that he was the gate for the sheep, it wasn't just a metaphor. Jesus was literally describing what would happen. That those who enter into Jesus have to enter through the gate of Jesus. On that cross. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Christ was the spotless lamb without defect that redeemed us from the curse that has dominated humanity since we rebelled against God way back in the garden. As Paul said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Because of that curse, we were separated from God Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. Every single human being except Christ has sinned and failed to live up to God's standards. The cost of that sin and rebellion, the war we've been in against God, the cost of that is death. When Christ looked at his people and and he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion on them for, for they were harassed and helpless. He saw that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die. God put our sins on Christ, and Christ took the punishment for them on that cross. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it." None of how this story has gone is how we would have written it. If it were up to us, we would have probably made the same mistakes the Israelites made. They weren't looking for the Passover lamb, they were looking for the hero who would rescue them the way they thought they needed to be rescued. If you were writing this story, is this the way that you would write it? Or would you be tempted, like I would, to want to write Jesus as, as a superhero who, who just comes in and saves the day? Do you remember how God said, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts? Well, God God just doesn't make mistakes. Nothing God does is by accident, and God is never surprised. In the beginning of the story, when we were talking about what things were like before the beginning began, we looked at this verse in Ephesians 1, verse 4. For He, God, chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Well, that paragraph goes on to say in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through jesus christ in accordance with his pleasure and will in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of god's grace that he lavished on us he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. And John says in Revelation 13:8 that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. God knew exactly what He was doing. He knew that we would rebel against Him in the garden and, 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 and that, that we would need a way to deal with our sin problem. It was not God's desire to kill His Son on the cross, but our desire was for ourselves and, and not to listen to God. God's intent was that we never rebel in the first place. His intent was that His people listen and obey the covenants that He created. He wanted us to be His people so He could be our God. God's intent was that the people listen to Jesus and turn from their sin. God intended good for us all along. We were the ones that kept choosing evil. Remember this verse? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. The cross was an execution device. Its purpose was death. But what we planned for evil, God used for good. The cross becomes a tree of life. As it turns out, when you wrongly murder the only innocent one, something different happens. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. What's happening? Where's Jesus' body? I mean, he's been dead for three days now, and it's time to prepare his body for the gruesome process of decay and decomposition. But Jesus's body isn't there. Mary and the other women who went to that tomb to prepare Jesus's body think that someone has actually stolen Jesus's body and hid it somewhere. So they run back and tell the disciples. Well, John, the disciple that Jesus loved, outruns Peter to the tomb. But but he seems to be afraid to go in. But Peter, well, Peter just he just bounds right in and he sees Jesus' grave clothes lying there. John comes in after Peter, and when John sees whatever he sees in there, he believes. But what does he believe? No one has seen Jesus yet. Well, apparently, Mary also goes back to the tomb. She's weeping outside the tomb. Jesus had set Mary free from seven demons. So not only is her Savior dead, but she can't even grieve as she prepares his body. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. We don't know what their names are. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, "and, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking that Jesus was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I'll go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, "Rabboni," which means, I mean, he was dead, and not just kind of dead, he was sweating drops of blood, whipped to shreds, beaten, crucified, and stabbed in the heart with a spear, dead. People simply did not survive Roman crucifixions. If someone were to survive, the guard responsible for that execution would have been executed. So yes, Jesus was dead, dead. So how can it be? How can Jesus now be standing in front of Mary talking to her? It's a hard pill to swallow, which is probably why Jesus appeared to so many people after his resurrection. He appeared to Mary and the women at the tomb. He also appeared to Peter. He appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus to 10 of the 11 apostles excluding Thomas to the disciples who were fishing at the sea and then to all 11 apostles including Thomas to the 11 again on the mountain in Galilee to over 500 at one time to his half brother James and to all who witnessed his ascension Jesus made many appearances to many different people Jesus was back he's back and he's literally better than ever His post-resurrection body is able to do things outside of our ability to comprehend. He could walk through walls, he could teleport, and, and more. But the disciples just didn't expect this. Even though Jesus Himself said, We are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him, and spit on Him. They will flog Him and kill Him on the third day he will rise again. Jesus had said that he would be executed and that he would rise again. But the next verse tells us that the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and, and they did not know what he was talking about. John echoes the same thinking around this triumphal entry that Jesus had. He says, at, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, and that these things had been done to him. Well, there were, there were several prophecies that, that mention the idea of a resurrection. Isaiah chapter 53 Verse 10 and 11 says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Psalm 16 says, you will not let your faithful ones see decay. Hosea 6 says, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us. But these seem somewhat obscure. I mean, they they don't, they don't just come out and say, the Messiah will come back to life on the third day. Even Jesus's reference to Jonah didn't make clear what was going to happen. On multiple occasions, Jesus taught about the sign of Jonah when the people asked him for a sign. And he said, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." It seems to us that the disciples should have been expecting a resurrection. For some reason, God chose to keep the meaning of Jesus' words hidden from the disciples' understanding. If I were to guess why, it's so that the disciples would experience full and complete grief over the death of the Messiah, and then also experience a complete rebirth of joy at His resurrection. Still, just as the ten plagues and the exodus from Egypt are historical events that can be proven, the resurrection of Jesus is an historically verified event. There is more than abundant evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Christians are never asked to believe in the resurrection by faith. We don't need faith for something that can be proven. Jesus is alive. He's alive. He is. Death could not keep life down. Jesus' time in the grave was temporary. He only needed to be dead long enough to defeat it because of the resurrection we know that jesus is who he said he was he is the son of god and he is the son of david he is the prophet priest and king he is the promised messiah he is the bread of life that we eat and live he's the gate for the sheep jesus isn't just everything he said he was he is he always was and he always will be. What does this mean for us? Thanks to Jesus' teaching, it's pretty simple. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Because Jesus lives, we live. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. Paul actually helps clarify the implications of the resurrection. Don't you know that that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were, therefore, buried with Him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way you and I, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires for anyone who has put their faith in Jesus. Our old rebellious self has literally been put to death. Buried with Christ through baptism. And since we have put our old life to death, we're also guaranteed to receive his new life. In the here and now, a resurrection of our spirit that has at its core a desire to please God. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're set free from it. We're no longer subject to the reign of death in our bodies. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. As Jesus was making his appearances, he also started giving the disciples what we call the Great Commission. This commission would be the driving force for the disciples for the rest of their lives based on the resurrection. This is what many of the disciples would be in pursuit of when they would give their lives for that cause. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In the Greek, the command or imperative is only attached to one word, and no, it's not go. The command is to make disciples of all nations. Modern Christianity has been obsessed with making converts. We have falsely believed all that's required is to convince people that they need a savior, lead them in a prayer of repentance, hopefully get them baptized, and maybe get them in a church. If we do that, hey, We're good, but that wasn't Jesus's command. His command, his imperative was to make disciples. To do with others what Jesus had done for the disciples. The crazy part is, He leaves us in charge of this mission. He spent 40 days making appearances and teaching the disciples how all the law and prophets were pointing to Him. He reinforced the work that He had already done with the disciples. The resurrection would serve as the inciting incident in the beginning of another story. One that we're going to get to next week. But once He had finished these forty days, He lifted up His hands and blessed them. And while He was blessing them, He left them and was taken up into heaven. He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid Him from their sight. The disciples and others gathered there that day not only saw Jesus ascend into heaven, they saw Him return to His rightful place. The Son of God, the priest, prophet, king, was now back on His throne. Having changed everything, He's back where He belongs. But there is a problem. Now the disciples are left to do what Jesus did. And the only thing is, Jesus was God, and the disciples were not. How were they going to do the same thing Jesus did when they weren't Jesus?